Chapter Seven of the Physiology of the Opera by Screechy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. Chapter Seven. A neat, snug study on a winter's night. A book, friend, single lady, or a glass of claret, sandwich, and an appetite, are things which make an English evening pass. Though certes by no means so grand a sight as in a theatre lit up with gas byron the night is a cold one the snow is falling in large heavy flakes and those who are fond of the frigid but exhilarating amusement of sleighing are in hopes that by the morrow they will be able to pass like lightning from one part of the city to the other in a sleigh decked with warm gaily trimmed furs filled with a merry company and drawn by two high-headed dashing trotters the gas lights are just discernible from corner to corner. The number of people in the streets is steadily decreasing, and the sound of their footfall is muffled in the snow. About the theatres and the opera house, however, crowds of the idle and curious, gaping at those who are entering these buildings, make it necessary for the police to pace to and fro, ordering back the more presumptuous loiterers, who press forward and obstruct the approach to the doors. Query why does the crowd always stare at those who are going into a theatre or opera the latter are attired somewhat strangely to be sure but still they don't look exactly like choctaws the cab and chaisemen muffled up in their cold defying greatcoats and woollen comforters are opening the doors of their several vehicles out of which ladies enveloped in cloaks and hoods are dismounting under cover of umbrellas held probably by the best of brothers but more probably by a gentleman in no way related to them. In the opera house all is bustle and commotion. The officials are selling tickets, receiving tickets, and directing to their places bevies of ladies and gentlemen bewildered in a maze of passages. The audience is impatiently preparing itself for a delightful evening's entertainment. The dandies, who are so unfortunate as not to have accompanied ladies, have already brought themselves up to the attack and have leveled their opera-glasses on all the points where they know well-established objects of admiration are likely to be found. Now and then they bow their recognition in a reserved inclination, or in a careless, smiling way that bespeaks the freedom of familiar intimacy. The fast men are standing at the doors in knots of three and four, talking over the last trot of Suffolk, or the probable chance of victory in the next day's dog-fight, and making a few, no doubt, very fast, but not very proper, allusions to the shoulders of some rather sparingly habited bells. The Cubans in the parquet, who, by the by, during their sojourn in this country, will best preserve their liberty by remaining north of Mason and Dixon's line, are clearing their voices in very doubtful Spanish, for those animated bravos, which we must admit they always administer in the very best taste, both as to time and quantity. Here and there, some lone young man, desolate in a crowd, who has seldom before been exposed to the full blaze of the all-discovering gaslight, not exactly knowing what to do with himself, is endeavouring, with a fictitious indifference, to fill up the vacancies of attention by smoothing down the stubborn folds of badly selected white kids. Five collegians, just escaped from the studious universities for a high week in town, have established themselves altogether, and commenced a running commentary, carried on chiefly in the Virginia dialect, 
on men women and things much to the annoyance of a very foreign gentleman behind them so foreign that he is almost black who looks stilettos at his cheerful but over loquacious neighbors one youth in an excessively white though unpleasantly stiff cravat is assisting an equally stiff old chaperone into her place at the expense of great physical efforts till his cheeks are thereby suffused with a tint strongly resembling the color of a juvenile beet while the distended veins of his forehead would make a fine anatomical study for the laborious medical student if that fabulous biped were still extant the chaperone being disposed of four young ladies under her surveillance two in opera cloaks and hoods and two in antediluvian mantles and pre-adamitic headgear assuring the existence of rural cousinship by four minor efforts of the same gentleman are at length safely landed in their places but now commences a new round of confusion each of the four young ladies discovers that she has placed herself on some article of clothing belonging to her companion whereupon she half rises and having drawn forth the disturbing habiliment resumes her former position and as this movement is performed by each of them without regard to the order in which they have placed themselves and is repeated half a dozen times in as many minutes the unconscious fair ones become the subjects of the illusions of the fast men who immediately institute comparisons between them and various animate and inanimate objects one of these gentlemen observing that their motions remind him of a flock of aquatic fowl known by the name of divers a facetious friend replies that probably he means diving bells which being considered an extremely happy pun it meets with a hearty laugh of approbation but an ambitious fast wit fearing that his reputation is likely to be lost for ever if he remains silent says that the whole group of uneasy females recalls the line of coleman for what is so gay as a bag full of fleas this being regarded as the acme of brilliancy there is no telling what might be the consequences if their attention were not drawn into another channel by the entrance of a distinguished bell who is immediately pronounced to be a stunner and the question is raised as to who the man is who acts as the bottle-holder reference thereby being had to the gentleman who is so polite as to hand the lady to her place and aid her in disposing of her divers little appliances of operatic necessity the bell scarcely takes her seat before she commences to hum snatches of italian airs in a very careless indifferent way just to show how much she is at home in such a place and probably to attract a little more attention query why do the handsomest women at an opera always talk and laugh the loudest that portion of the audience comprised in the gentler sex is here in all the attraction of natural loveliness and adventitious ornament putting to flight a notion once prevalent that beauty when unadorned is then adorned the most the noise of conversation which now lulls now swells out in gentle crescendos is chiefly the production of this taciturn part of the audience all at once the gas is let on in a gush of light the buzz of voices which up to this time has been carried on in a subdued tone bursts out into full force with a suddenness that seems to render it probable that the conversation has been issuing all the while from the gas-jets the augmented light brings down another volley from the fossi of a thousand lorgnettes at this moment the musicians begin to enter the orchestra which has been void of occupants all the evening with the exception of one meaningless old fellow 
who has been attempting to restore order among the stands, seats, and books, but whose laudable efforts have ended in what every single gentleman at lodgings knows all endeavours to set things to right, are sure to effect, a state of affairs in which confusion is considerably worse confounded. But after all, a music stand must be adjusted by the performer himself. No one can put the hat of another on the head of the latter so as to be comfortable to him. The latter must pose it for himself. This law applies with peculiar force to music stands. The violinists proceed to tighten or slacken the hair of their bows, to throw back the coat collar, or stuff a white handkerchief under it, in order to adjust the violin to the peculiar crook of each neck, with as much apparent anxiety as if they had not been doing the same thing for the last thirty years, and some of their heads had not become bald over the sound-post. In the meantime, the other members of this well-bearded corps are streaming in with their instruments under their arm, and are placing their music-books and lamps at the proper elevation on the stands, all the while talking, nodding, and smiling, as if rehearsing half the day, and playing half the night, were a mighty good joke. And then ascend to the highest parts of the house, to the regions of the operatic paradise, those most singular of all instrument sounds, those fifty or sixty antagonistic voluntaries, with which all the audience would voluntarily dispense, consisting of chromatics in twenty different keys, violin octaves, harmonics, thirds and fifths, clarinet shakes, flute staccatos, horn growlings, ophicleider rumblings, triangular vibrations, and drum concussions. See to their desks Apollo's sons repair, swift rides the rosin o'er the horse's hair. In unison their various tones to tune, murmurs the hot boy, growls the hoarse bassoon. In soft vibration sighs the whispering lute, twang goes the harpsichord, too too the flute, brays the loud trumpet, squeaks the fiddle sharp, winds the French horn, and twangs the tingling harp. About the time that the observer has made up in his mind to answer to the following mental queries, how many nights the first violinist could play without getting a crick in the neck, whether the flutist may not sometimes blow his eyes so far out of his head that he may never be able to get them back again, how long it would take the operator on the cornet a piston to learn to play on the magnetic telegraph, why such a small man should be suffered to perform on such a big thing as the avocleida, and how a person with such a huge moustache can get the piccolo up to lips defended by such a bulwark of hair. A fermentation is observable in the midst of this musical whirlpool, which indicates the presence of some higher power. Place is given by the humble members of the orchestra, and the director is seen to stand forth in the attitude of mounting the tribunal from whence he guides his submissive subjects with despotic sway. He is a neat-figured little man, with a profusion of methodically adjusted curls, a moustache that would render his physiognomy excessively ferocious, if an occasional smile playing over the distinguishable parts of his face did not modify this expression. He is attired in the costume of the ballroom, bearing in his buttonhole the most delicate rosebud of the conservatory, and in his perfectly gloved hand an amber-headed baton, the scepter of command. At his appearance a wave of applause floats up from the audience, and the head and breast of the director bend down to meet it in a graceful and reverential bow, accompanied by a smile expressing the highest possible amount of inward gratification. This little acknowledgment of a becoming respect for the good opinion of the house is repeated once or twice, 
and then with the air of a man who has important business on hand he mounts his elevated seat he gives one or two magical taps on the stand and the chaos of sounds is annihilated with the exception of the lamentations of one refractory violin over which the owner has been for the last half hour repeatedly first inclining his head in a horizontal position and then tugging away at the screws at this the director seems to be much annoyed and the poor violinist more annoyed mutters to a companion that he wishes himself an unspeakably long way hence probably in italy where he could procure some good strings the resisting violin having been brought to subjection the director casts an eye over the whole body of musicians and having thrown back his head and lifted up both arms very much in the supposed attitude of ajax defying the thunder he remains perfectly motionless for an instant and then brings forward the whole of his body from the hips upward with a rapid and powerful jerk which introduces his forehead into close proximity with the musical score which he pretends to be reading the baton strikes the stand with a loud clap and one old drummer proceeds to touch the drum but in so gentle a manner that it sounds as if instead of using the sticks he were tossing some grains of shot on it you now tremble for the safety of the director and you enter into an arithmetical calculation with yourself the basis of which is that if the director by such a dangerous inclination of the person can only bring one poor drummer into movement what amount of bodily labor will he be compelled to undergo in order to operate on all that concourse of musicians but your fears are dissipated in a few moments for you discover that great sounds and little sounds are accompanied with about the same degree of gesticulary emphasis in the meantime some horns have commenced to blow on a very small scale not hard enough you would suppose to drive the dust out of them and if the piston of the cornet did not rattle so you would pronounce its playing all a sham the violins and flutes begin to be audible and the violinists are suddenly struck with a simultaneous desire to pick the strings just as if that would make any music all the other instruments are now doing duty in very feeble tones and you take a look round the house to see who are there and you wonder why that particular family of smiths with whom you have the pleasure of an acquaintance has not yet appeared you think miss julia brown's hair arranged with the usual want of elegance and then call to mind the fact that at newport the previous summer you complimented her so many times on the peculiar taste which her coiffure always displayed the aforesaid drummer is now giving the drum considerable ill usage and for the first time you observe that he has two of them which he appears to beat alternately the director is casting his head from one side to the other flashes of disapprobation dart from his eyes upon the dilatory violinists who from time to time stop as it were to catch breath and fail to come to the scratch in due season every now and then a frown dark as a rebus spreads over his brow as some poor laggard is astray in the mazes of sound and can't find his place or turns two pages instead of one and consequently loses the thread of his harmonious discourse the music grows so powerful that the conversation of the most enthusiastic and vociferous fast man no longer meets the ear the orchestra is going as if they were riding an instrumental steeplechase and the director looks more and more involved in doubt as to which of his followers is to be left most in the rear at length when you have concluded that every musician has exhausted his last resource in the general attempt to make a noise you are knocked into a start of astonishment by the introduction of a chord of reserve in the clash of cymbals 
which sounds as if a careless servant had stumbled in coming up the stairs and mashed an entire set of Sevres china. In the midst of this carnage of crotchets and quavers, the director is obviously the controlling spirit who rides in the whirlwind and directs the storm. There he sits, producing no one sound except an occasional rap of his baton on the desk, and yet rousing to frenzy, or lulling into tranquillity, the instruments of all this tumult, every now and then, as Mr. Macaulay would say, hurling foul scorn at the heaps of little black dots that are crowded over the leaves of his score. When the intensity of the tones has been diminished and augmented some half-dozen times, the overture is concluded in four grand crashes, in which the cymbals make the most conspicuous figure. During the overture, however, there seems to be occasional seasons when there is a sensation of hostilities, and a soft, plaintive air is taken up by one clarinet, violoncello, or oboe, with which air the audience must be very delighted, for they laugh and talk with the greatest earnestness, and never turn their eyes toward the orchestra. And now there is a new commotion amongst the musicians, while arranging everything for the more serious undertaking, the opera itself. The director goes about like a general on the eve of battle, reconnoitres his forces, and marshals them for the attack. He mounts the elevated seat, gives another contortion to his frame, similar to that which was necessary to put the overture into movement, and then the curtain rises. Heads are slightly projected from the boxes at this moment, and many an alabaster neck is curved forward till the lowered drapery reveals the snowy bosom. The noise of conversation ceases, and the opera commences in earnest. End of chapter 7